I feel like I should say something about the lights because everybody has, but these are new lights. You didn't have to do it just for me, but I'm uh, glad to be on display and I'm glad that I uh, am matching this morning. Uh, well, let me, let me just say, so I pastor Fox Hill Road Baptist Church and, and I love pastoring the saints there. And so it is, is not fun to be away from them. I don't know many of you. And so it is um, it, it's somewhat uncomfortable to, to come and preach, but this, the reason we're doing this, and, and Ryan said it, um, is we are, so, our church is so thankful to be part of the, the Pillar Network, uh, and I know as a, a pastor, the, the fellowship among the pastors is, is rare um, and so necessary, and so I'm thankful for your pastor, and, and because of my love for him, I have a heart for you as well, and, and my aim uh, is, is to, to encourage you this morning. Um, it's, it's hard as a, a one time, so I know that Ryan, I know that you as, as a church family, you, you have a diet of a steady uh, progress of God's word through books of the Bible. And so we're off script this morning, so I had to pick a, a passage uh, from a book that Ryan hadn't preached on. And so we're going to be looking at uh, three verses from the letter to Hebrews, the, the Hebrews um, and so we're going to, we'll read that in a second. But just, just greetings from Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Uh, my family and I are, are thankful to be here gathering with you. Um, and, and I do hope that, that you're encouraged uh, this morning. Well, we are going to consider the, the title, the sermon title is Our Great High Priest. And so we're going to consider together the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. And so if, if you have your Bible, you can turn there and we'll, we'll read it together in a second. Uh, and the Pew Bible that, that should be in front of you, I just checked, it's page 1003. Uh, and so if you don't have a Bible, that is there for you to use. Uh, but before you jump into this, again, we're, we're jumping into the middle of an argument in the letter to the Hebrews. And so I just want to set the stage because the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ the, the high priestly ministry that now occupies the Lord Jesus Christ must be understood in light of what came before. Because the high priestly ministry of Christ is the fulfillment of a shadow, the substance of a, of a, a, a pattern fulfilling reality. And we'll not understand the purpose and the nature of the high priestly ministry of Christ apart from understanding the bigger picture, the context that he comes in light of. And so most basic terms, understanding the relationship between the function of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant high priest and their role in the sacrificial system, the relationship between that and the function of Jesus Christ as the high priest of the New Covenant is about understanding the relationship between symbols and the real thing. The, the, the relationship between shadows and the substance, between types and the shadow or the fulfillment and this point is made clear throughout the book of Hebrews. It's made very clear later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 when the author writes that the law, which includes all of its regulations and rituals, he says, is but a shadow of the good things to come and is not the true form of these realities. He goes on to say that the continual offering of these sacrifices, which were part of this old covenant by a high priest, that the, the continual regular offering of them proved that they weren't effective. If they were effective, they would be offered and be done with. But they're offered over and over and over, and they were specifically offered as a reminder of sin, which is the point that, that we have to understand here this morning. They served as a reminder of sin, not as the means of forgiveness of sins. 
In fact, the author makes quite clear that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, of sacrificed animals, to take away sins. And so this entire system, this old covenant, this, this Old Testament sacrificial system, the observance of the feast days and the Day of Atonement, all of these, the entire calendar life of the Jewish people was organized around a system that could not actually accomplish anything. It was established in order to show the people their sin and their need for forgiveness. It's like your, your mobile banking app. Maybe you're not like me, but, but when you look at the total in your account and you see it's dangerously low, you look at it over and over and over and you think, this isn't good. We're not going to make it this month. And, and the next day you check it again to see, what, well, maybe something changed. And you keep checking it as if checking it will make the numbers change, but it's just a reminder of a bigger problem, isn't it? Looking at the mobile banking app isn't going to address or solve your problem. It's only going to remind you of the problem. And as often as you look at it, you're reminded of the problem. That's how this old covenant, the high priest, the sacrificial system functioned as a reminder. And how it worked is that there were these regular sacrifices that were offered to remind the people of their sins and their need of forgiveness. But they're also taught within this whole system, there were individuals, there were these, these appointed men who were high priests. And these high priests in this system acted on behalf of men in relation to God. And so they were acting as, as the go-between between the, the, the people of Israel and the holy God in whom they were in relationship with. And so under this old covenant, the, the priest acted as the representatives for these sinful people and the holy God. He, he was the one who mediated the relationship. And he did so by making offerings and sacrifices on their behalf. And, and, and the, the, the assumption of these sacrifices, the, the assumption of this entire relationship was based on the reality of the broken relationship between God and his people. They were a sinful and rebellious people. They failed to live up to the covenant expectations. They were not law keepers, they were law breakers. And they had sin that needed to be dealt with. And so these sacrifices were reminders of their inability to keep the law and to uphold their end of the covenant. And so this one man, once a year, and, and you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, but there was the, the day of atonement, and one man, once a year, would go into the most holy place and would offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. And this was the, the, the forgiveness of sins. The, this is the way that sins were dealt with. And he represented the people. He was the only one that could go into that place because he was appointed by God, and he did only the things that God appointed him to do and it was for the sake of the people that were standing outside. And he was, he was interceding. He was acting on their behalf. And he did so so that the Lord would continue to dwell among them. Because their, their sin, their rebellion was dealt with through these temporary means. To put it plainly, the relationship between God and his covenant people was dependent upon the ministry of the appointed high priest. Mediation is necessary and so the question that the ministry of the high priest addresses, how can a holy God dwell among unholy men and women? And the answer is the high priest and his ministry. And that's important for us in understanding where we're gonna, what we're going to read here in Hebrews chapter 4. Because this is why the old covenant sacrificial system was put into place to symbolically represent the issue of human sin, how sin must be dealt with, and who specifically is qualified to deal with sin. 
And we recognize in God's sovereign plan that this temporary establishment of the old covenant, and we can rejoice in recognizing that this was not the permanent reality. Because it was this old covenant and it wasn't effective. It was a temporary shadow, a temporary pointer to the real thing. And friends, the real thing has come. With the arrival of Jesus Christ and with the the coming of the Son of God, specifically his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we see the real thing. We see the effective sacrifice, the true once and for all death, the the shedding of precious blood that actually does deal with our sin. We, We see that in the coming of Christ. We see the great high priest who is better and far superior to any other high priest who had ever been appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And and with the coming of Christ, with this new covenant, the shadows and symbols are no longer necessary. The real thing's here. And this tension between the the new and the old is, is what the book of Hebrews is about. Because you have people who are, who are following Christ, but then they're being tempted to fall back into the old ways of Judaism and, and go back to the sacrificial system. And, and we don't know the specifics, but there's pressures, cultural pressures, family pressures, maybe governmental pressures, but they're being forced to, to hold fast because it's getting difficult for them. And, and some of them are saying, well, it'd just be easier if we just went back to the old way. Just went to the priest and, and the, the offerings that, that we once took part in. And the author of Hebrews throughout the book is saying, don't do it. You must hold fast to Christ because if you forsake Christ, you lose everything. And that's the point of the book of Hebrews. And it, especially our passage this morning serves as a, as a hinge point in the book of Hebrews. And the, the role of Jesus as the great high priest is the central argument of the book of Hebrews. And in fact, from our passage this morning, chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, all the way through the end of chapter 10 the author spins qualifying the high priesthood of Jesus as superior and effective and better than anything before. And so this is the main point of the book of Hebrews in our passage this morning, I think gives us a summary of what the book of Hebrews is going to argue throughout this major section. So you should be at the, the passage and I recognize the practice. I watched some of your sermons online and I, I know the practice and I'm happy to, to, to partake and have you stand together as I read the passage for us. So if you would, please stand. And you can follow along as I read Hebrews chapter four. I'm gonna read verses 14, 15, and 16. God's word says this. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can be seated. Let me pray for us as, as we look at these verses. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, there are depths in these three verses that we could spend our entire lives plumbing and never reach the bottom. And so our feeble, my feeble effort this morning 
is to encourage your people with the high priestly ministry of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And so I pray, Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Spirit, would you apply this word to our hearts. Would we not just know some things about the high priestly ministry of Jesus, but, but, but would our lives be changed and transformed because we actually have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our needs and our weaknesses and is able to help us by giving grace and mercy in our time of need. So would you, would you apply this word to us? And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the, the logic of this passage is, is quite simple and, and it's straightforward. And so there's two imperatives and imperatives are just another word for commands. They're things that we need to do. And if you look in our passage, there's, there's two imperatives that are both marked off by the phrase, let us, let us. So look there at the end of verse 14. There's the first let us, let us hold fast our confession. And then in verse 16, the beginning of verse 16, let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace. And, and both of these imperatives are tied to realities about the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus. And so the one sentence summary of this passage, the, the summary of this sermon would be simply, it is because Jesus is our high priest that we can hold firmly to our confession and approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's because he's our high priest that we can, we can fulfill these two imperatives. We can obey these two imperatives. And so the two main points are related to the high priestly ministry of Christ, and both are followed by these exhortations. And so first we'll see the position of our high priest. Where is he? Passed through the heavens, verse 14. Then second, the experience of our high priest. He's able to sympathize because he's, he's like us and able to help us, is verse 15 through 16. And then both exhortations follow those main points. So first, the position of our high priest, verse 14. Notice how the logic works. The, the statement is the ground or the reason for the exhortation since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us do something. Let us hold fast our confession. Another way of stating this relationship is to say, because Jesus is our high priest who's passed through the heavens, we ought to hold fast to our confession. And so the first question we ask is, well, what does Jesus being our high, being our high priest and, and having passed through the heavens have to do with us holding fast to our confession? So, so notice the first reality. The author says, we, including himself, we have, he says, a great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, now, why has Jesus passed through the heavens? What is being conveyed here? Now, part of it is certainly the, the victorious ascension. He was, Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And there's a victorious resurrection that's followed by an ascension 40 days later. So part of his authority of Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry has to do with the fact that, that he has entered into the true holy of holies, the real holy of holies, of which the temple and the tabernacle were only shadows and patterns. Listen to Hebrews 9, what it'll say later. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, in other words, heavenly, he entered once for all into the holy places. And so the, the earthly priest of the old covenant would pass through the holy of holies in the temple or in the tabernacle. And they would offer the, their, the sacrifices there. They would perform their high priestly ministry there. But Jesus has passed through the heavens. He hasn't passed through an earthly tabernacle. He's entered into the holy places not made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. And he does so on our behalf. We have a great high priest who has passed through 
the heavens. And right now, believer, he is ministering in the real and true Holy of Holies, in God's presence as our representative on your behalf, on my behalf. Of course, he is our great high priest. His high priestly ministry is far superior to any other high priest because it's not in a temple made by hands. It is the heavenly temple, the holy of holies. But, but notice also how Jesus is referred to here. He's our great high priest, but he's Jesus, human name, son of God, divine title. He's Jesus, the son of God. Remember the high priest represents man to God. Well, here's Jesus, the son of God. He is the divine son. The Earlier in chapter one, he was identified as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and the one who upholds the universe by the word of the power. This son, divine son, who, whose throne is forever, who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, who is the ruler over all of God's house. This son is the same son who is our great high priest. Jesus, the divine son, he's not one of Levi's sons. He is the son the divine son who took on flesh and became like us. And, and he didn't come, he didn't take on flesh to help the angels. He came to help the offspring of Abraham. And as author, the author made clear in chapter two, he came and was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the son of God, came to help us So Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, the God-man who has become our great high priest. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, there's something we ought to do. There's an exhortation. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast your confession, or, or the NIV would say, let us hold firmly to the faith we process, profess. Since we have this great high priest, let's hold fast to our confession that he is our great high priest. That's the point. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest, and because of that, hold fast to your confession, specifically your confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the great high priest. That this confession cannot be separated from the identity of Jesus. The language is similar to to chapter three, verse one, where Jesus is called the apostle and a high priest of our confession. And so to hold fast to our confession, to to obey this exhortation is to hold fast to Christ. Since he's passed through the heavens and is interceding now on the behalf of his people, why would anyone stop holding fast to him? Where are you going to go? Why would anyone refuse to confess him as the son of God who made payment for my sins that I might be reconciled to God? Why would you forsake that for, for a little ease of suff- from suffering? The author will not let that solution be considered for long without saying, don't do it. Hold fast. He is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. And, and because of that, the right and fitting response is to hold fast to our confession that Jesus is the Son of God, our great high priest. 
I mean, if you stop and consider the, the context of this letter, we don't know the specifics, but we know that there were pressures that came upon those who followed Christ. Probably cultural pressures. Probably there's, there's, there's danger in identifying with the Christians of the day under the, the, the Roman rule there. Potential sufferings, maybe death, martyrdom, maybe family pressures. I mean, think about you grew up in a Jewish household and your whole life was, was organized by this Jewish calendar. And then you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that means you, you, you turn from all of this and say, this is better. That's not going to go well among your family and friends. And, and so there's pressures. And while many of us probably aren't, aren't tempted to fall back to the old way of Judaism, we can identify with the pressure that comes from holding fast to Christ in a, in a world, in a culture that is hostile to it, that would seek to, to prevent you. The, 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 the aim of, of the culture and of, of the world would, would be to separate you from your confession, to separate you from your high priest. And so we can, we can identify with these first readers and we can recognize these pressures and, and say, in light of the temptation to fall back, we must hold fast and confess him as our great high priest. And we do so with great risk. There's great risk in holding fast to our confession. But what's the alternative, friend? What's the alternative? Why would you forsake him? So the, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to shout from the mountaintop. To fall back is to lose everything. To fall away from Christ is to lose it all. And though it may seem appealing, maybe it would lead to less immediate friction, less discomfort, less public shame. The author of Hebrews wants you to know, wants me to know, wants his audience to know with absolute clarity that to fall away from Christ, to loosen your grip, to, to let him slip through your fingers, as it were, is not an option for the follower of Christ. It's not an option for the Christian. Regardless of struggle, regardless of cost, the call for the Christian is to hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. So that's the first exhortation. And I just want to pause here and, and just make a point of application. If your confession here this morning is not that Jesus, the Son of God, is your great high priest who laid down his life, shed his blood for you, if that's not your confession, if you're not holding fast to that confession, I'm glad that you're here, but I can't let you leave here without telling you that apart from Christ, you will perish in your sins forever. Without a great high priest who laid down his life that you might be made reconcilable and reconciled to God the Father, without Jesus as your mediator, you have no hope. And you need to know that. But you also need to know that, that he's a great high priest who laid down his life for you, that you might be reconciled to God. And so I'm, I know that there are people here sitting among you, there are pastors here that would love to show you what it means to hold fast to Christ, to put your faith in him, to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And so if that's, if that's a, a burden you're bearing, don't leave here without making the confession and clinging to Christ as a great high priest. I mean, I'll probably never see you again, but there are those here that know you and love you and they would, their, their greatest desire would be that you would cling to Christ and, and have payment for your sins. Well, that leads to, to the second point. Look there at verse 15. We see that the, the, the position of our high priest, he's passed through the heavens, but, but notice also the experience, verses 15 through 16. 
And notice he, he begins verse 15 with a negative. He's just said we do have a high priest, something we do have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. Now he has says something in the negative. But, but it's not just one negative. Notice it's a double negative. We do not have a high priest who's unable who, or who's not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, which, if you understand how double negatives work, kind of like math, right? The two negatives make a positive. So what he's, what he's saying, the meaning is that we do have a high priest who can sympathize. But why doesn't he say that? Instead, he, he makes the point in the negative. And I think the reason he does is because he's just finished saying, Jesus, the Son of God, is in the heavens interceding for us. He's, he's way up there. And, and others would say, well, what good does that high priest do? I mean, at least we, under the old covenant, have a priest that we can see, and we see him go in, and we see him come out, and we're like, hey, that's our guy. He's, he's there for us. He can relate to us. And I think he's, he's anticipating that objection and say, we don't have one who can't sympathize, but we have one who can sympathize. Even though he is now in the heavens, he understands. He's not, actually not far removed from our human experience in a hostile world. And so author of Hebrews makes the point that assuming that Jesus is unable to help because of his passing through the heavens, that, that couldn't be more wrong. So he says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, but we have one who can. And notice how he continues verse 15 to, 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 to work that out. We, have, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but on the contrary, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has in every respect been tempted as we are. Because he became like us. This is what I mentioned, the, the wonderful truth of the incarnation, the reality of the Son of God becoming man, the, the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh. And the point being made here is that the incarnation enables sympathy. Now, of course, as, as a member of the triune God, Jesus knew our weaknesses. He's omniscient. There's no way that he doesn't know. It's not like he gets new knowledge, but there's a, a sense in which his, his ability to sympathize is increased because he became like us. He can deal gently as our high priest with us because he's gone through what we've gone through. He's lived a real human life in a real fallen world. And as a human, which by the way, Jesus is still embodied in a human body. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But as a human being, he knows the frailties and groaning that besets the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest, but is himself intimately acquainted with the human condition. Isaiah says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And this sympathy, ability to sympathize, is crucial for his service as the great high priest. Like I mentioned, chapter 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's merciful and able to help those who suffer and face temptation because he walked the same path. And we know this from real life, don't we? As a husband of a wife, there, there have been points in our marriage where my wife can look at me and justifiably say, you have no idea what it's like to be a woman. And that's true. I'm not having a baby. I don't know some of the things that ladies go through. Or, or maybe you've suffered the loss of a loved one, a, a spouse, 
or a child. And, and often well-intentioned people will, will sometimes, in an attempt to encourage you, say, well, I know what you're going through. And you think you have no idea. Now, they're well-intentioned, but those aren't the best words to minister in that time. They're difficult, trying, painful human experiences that we experience as the product of, of living in a fallen world. And we're tempted to think, no one knows what it's like to be me. No one knows my struggles. No one knows what it's like to have this, this weakness and to have to face this trial or these thoughts or these temptations. And all of Hebrews would want to say it is precisely at that point that our great high priest can say, I do know. He is a great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness because he's been tempted as you are. Now, a caveat to make, we have to understand that Jesus experienced the full range of human temptation, but he didn't experience every specific human temptation. That would, that would be impossible. Right? So he doesn't know what it's like to neglect a responsibility that you have because you're, you're scrolling Instagram or, or Facebook. Right? He didn't know that. He didn't experience that temptation. But, but the full range of human temptation was experienced by our great high priest. I mean, listen to how one commentator explains it. He says, naturally, when this letter says that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, our writer is not thereby implying that within his lifetime, Christ encountered every possible different temptation. He could hardly have experienced personally the specific temptations, yet at the root of the different temptations encountered by men and women throughout the wide range of human experience, there are a number of basic trials or tests, and Jesus certainly knew what it was like to meet these and emerge victoriously from the struggle. He knew those temptations which, if unconquered, lead on to doubt, despair, and disobedience towards God. And so he knew the temptations. And in this context, in the book of Hebrews, the most clear temptation that I think that, that Jesus can identify with is the temptation that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when he felt pressure, when he knew what was just ahead of him, when he was aware of the cost he knew that the cross was, was immediately in front of him and he desired, Lord, if there's any way, let the cup pass from me. He was tempted to turn back from God's plan. And he knew what, what, the, the, what it felt like to say, well, there, there's gotta be a way out. I mean, think about the temptation in the wilderness with, with Satan when he says, hey, you can have the kingdoms and you can, you can uh, short circuit the cross. I'll just give it to you. Right? So he knew what it was like to desire an easy way back. He knew the, the pressure to, to fall back, but he never did. He persevered. He was faithful. He was faithful until the end. He was tempted in every respect that we are yet, important point, without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He is a high priest who's able to sympathize. He's also a high priest who knew what it was like to never give in to temptation. He never sinned. That's the difference. I mean, imagine there, there's a great C.S. Lewis quote. I don't have it here, but he talks about we, we, we think that, that, that Jesus, I'm, I'm going to mess this up. I'm just going to, here we go. Look, look this up afterwards, C.S. Lewis quote on walking in the wind. Uh, but, but he walks, so when you walk through the wind, you get to a point where it's like, it's too strong, I have to lay down, right? And you, you give in to the temptation, you, you lay down. Well, Jesus knew past that point, Right? He went to the extreme of the temptation and never laid down. So he knows more, far greater than we ever know what it's like to persevere in the midst of temptation because he never laid down. So he knows the greatest strength of the temptation. So he's able to sympathize. 
And the point the author makes as we move here to the second exhortation there in verse 16 is not only that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness, but also, and he, here's, here's the point, here's, here's the, the encouragement for us today. Not only can he sympathize, but he can actually render us aid when we need it. No, he isn't an absentee high priest who's totally removed from us in our experience, but neither is he a high priest who's powerless to actually do anything about our problems. Sometimes you, you meet with someone who's suffering and all you can do is say, yeah, that stinks. Jesus doesn't do that. He can sympathize and he can render aid. So look at the second exhortation. So, so the passage, since beginning of verse 14, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, exhortation one, let us hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Exhortation two, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So much to be said from this verse. Consider the the high priestly context and the exhortation to to draw near. There's still an Old Testament background at at play here. And when we're exhorted to draw near to the throne of grace... Right? It's only understood in light of the, the ministry of the high priest under the old covenant. So this isn't some new throne of grace that, that Jesus is sitting on. No, it's a, an old throne of grace that Jesus is now newly sitting on. The reality of the throne. So, so the mercy seat in the old covenant is the, the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the throne of grace. I think that's what the author means when he says, we approach the throne of grace. It's in the Holy of Holies where Jesus is seated. Do you remember back in the tabernacle and then later the temple? You, you, you had this layout of the courts. There are outer courts, there are inner courts. And there's the holy place and the most holy place. The holy of holies. This was the center of the worship of the Lord. And in this most holy place, there's this box. And this box had a lid on it, right? It's it fancier than a box, but that's what it was. It was a box with a lid on it. And on the lid of this box, there are these two angels that, that covered the, the top of this box. And it was known as the mercy seat, And this mercy seat played a central role in the life of the old covenant because once a year on the day of atonement, again, Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest would go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies to the place of the mercy seat and he would take with him blood, blood of a sacrificed goat and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed goat on the mercy seat. That's part of the shadow and the type. And this blood was a reminder of the sins, both of the priests the sins of the people who are outside, and the sacrifice, the blood of the bull, communicated that this mercy seat functions because blood has been shed. I am here because I have blood when I come. There's been a sacrifice, so I can approach this, this holy of holies because a sacrifice has been made. So the mercy seat was a year, yearly reminder that the people were sinful, the high priest included in that, and this sin required a sacrifice, a substitutionary death. You see, the bull was killed so that the people wouldn't have to be. And the mercy seat was the place where the reminder of the provision of a sacrifice for the sins of the people was on display year after year after year. And it's in light of that background that the exhortation of verse 16 shines forth. Let us, it's not just our high priest that goes in the Holy of Holies. He says, let us 
with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to the holy of holies, to the very presence of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is us, those who hold fast our confession, who are told to draw near to the throne of grace. It is us who have Christ as our great high priest that are told to approach the mercy seat. It's not one high priest once a year that goes, but, but all of us are exhorted, draw near now. Don't wait for the day of atonement. Now, draw near. Because all of us, because of one man, can now approach the mercy seat. Under the old way, access was severely limited. But now with Jesus as our great high priest, we're exhorted to draw near. The people of God, all of us, may enter the very presence on a continual basis. In fact, we can live at the throne of grace. And it's true because the blood of the Son of God has been shed for us. A sacrifice has been made on our behalf. And it wasn't a bull or a goat. It was the precious blood of the Son of God. And his sacrificial death, his substitutionary atonement is the source, the only source of our access to the presence of God, to the relationship that we enjoy as his people. It was the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ that enables us to draw near. It is the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ that enables us to draw near to the throne of grace. And we draw near, notice how we draw near? We draw near with confidence. Not fear and trembling, but confidence. The word could also be translated boldly. Let us boldly approach the throne of grace. One commentator notes, this word expresses the joyful confidence with which we can approach God because of Christ. And the reason for this joyful confidence, this certain boldness has, has really nothing to do with us and everything to do with our great high priest who has shed his blood on our behalf. We draw near with confidence knowing that God will not reject us, not because we had an okay week or, or because we measure up against our neighbors. That's not the source of our confidence. It's not a, a proud or self-righteous confidence. It is a dependent on Christ confidence. Because Christ has been crucified, buried, raised, and has passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies and is now serving as our great high priest, he guarantees our access and beckons us to draw near. Our confidence is in our great high priest and the sacrifice he's made on our behalf. And the motivation for this final exhortation there in verse 16 is this, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our access is certain because of the death of Christ. Our help is sure because of the ability of Christ. He is able to grant mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I even, I even see a distinction there. There's, there's mercy for your past sins and transgressions and there's grace for your present needs. There's mercy and there's grace and, and they are abundantly flowing from this throne of grace for you. And it's because of the ministry of our great high priest. And this truth, the truth of this verse is, is and I use the word intentionally, it's revolutionary. It changes things when we realize that we have a great high priest who is currently interceding on our behalf, serving as our great high priest, who is eager and ready to give mercy and grace in your time of need. No more restricted access, no more need for further sacrifices, no fear of rejection or anger or wrath coming from the throne. Instead, mercy and grace. 
Mercy and grace to those who come to the mercy seat through the work of the Son. So let that, think in, let that sink in. In the face of sin, in the face of your failing, in the face of your human weaknesses that give way to temptation, in the face of your, your guilt or your shame over, over current struggles or, or past sins, in the face of all these things and more, because of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our relationship with sin and the Lord has been forever altered. Because of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, our relationship with sin and the Lord has forever been altered in that sin has been dealt with and we have been reconciled to the Lord permanently, safely, and securely now and forever. Our sin and weakness now, instead of removing us from the presence, our sin and our weakness, according to verse 16, should actually lead us towards the throne of grace. I mean, how counterintuitive is that? Our sin and our weakness, our shame, our guilt, our struggles, our, our giving into temptation, all these things should lead us towards the throne of grace, not away from the throne of grace. This is, this is counterintuitive. Think about as fallen sinful creatures. I mean, if you have children, you know, did you do this? They, they won't look you in the eyes. They don't want to look at you because they know they've, they've faltered. We don't, we don't have a dog, but I hear that if a dog makes a mess and you say, did you do this? The dog will just, just not, not even look at you because they're ashamed because they know they have let you down and they've disobeyed. And there's just this human tendency that, that extends even to our pet world that says, when I've messed up, I don't want to face the person that I'm going to be held accountable by. When you're discouraged, when you're cold-hearted towards the Lord, when, when you've sinned, when you've failed to do what you know you should have done, when you've been caught, when your sin has been gracefully exposed, when you've disobeyed, when you're discouraged, when you're doubting, when you're tempted to, to throw in the towel and say, I just, I can't do this anymore. When, when these things happen, when you, incur, when you experience them, when your weakness is felt, your impulse, my impulse is not to draw near to the throne of grace, is it? We want to drift. We want to ignore. We want to run. We want to find other ways to deal with our stuff and our weakness. We want to drift away because we recognize we're not worthy. Could we really be accepted by a holy God? Does he know me? Surely the high priest is for those who have it together. Could he really welcome me? That, that, that's our sinful heart. To avoid the one. When we know that we failed, the last place we want to be is before the one who we think will be the most disappointed. Guilty consciences tell us we must run, but the good news of the gospel and the point of verse 16, the remedy, the exhortation of verse 16 is the opposite. Don't run away, but draw near. Draw near. The call here is to draw near in order to receive mercy. If you don't draw near, you're not getting mercy. And if you know you need mercy, you better draw near because that's how you get it. The reason for confidence is not, hey, it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah you can approach now because it's not actually that bad. It's not that big a deal. That's not why we have confidence and why we draw near. That's how we tend to make, oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that big a deal. I didn't even, I didn't remember what you said to me, so it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. 
we draw near with confidence, not because it's not bad, but because it is really bad. But we draw near because Jesus knows what it's like to face weaknesses and temptation, and he is sympathetic. Therefore, he's eager to extend mercy and grace to help in time of need. He doesn't extend mercy when we're doing well. He extends mercy, the text says, in time of need. That's why Jesus came and why he laid down his life for us. Help is granted when need is the greatest. To be in need of mercy means that there is one in a defenseless and pathetic condition. When people ask for mercy, their resources are non-existent and their only hope lies in evoking someone's pity. This is usually done in the language of pleading, but our great high priest is already moved with pity towards his people. Before you come and ask him, he's already moved with pity towards you. His mercies are tender, which means that he does not show mercy with a grudge. He delights to show mercy again and again and again. And so, brother, sister, when we draw near, we find abundant mercy and sufficient grace. Jesus does not plug his nose at your approach. He isn't grossed out or surprised by your weakness. He knows them and he sympathizes with them and he is endeared to us. Again, this is not in line with our natural way of thinking. Listen to one one author explain. We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that the, the wealthier a person is, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person is, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we're doing, we quietly assume that one, Jesus, so high and exalted, has a corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and the unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but he holds his nose. The truth of this passage, this author continues, is that the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. I love this image. He doesn't reach out and touch us the way a boy reaches out and touches a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. That's not Christ. Christ is gentle and lowly of heart. He's able to sympathize, to suffer with us in our weaknesses, and he is eager to give mercy and grace in your time of need. Therefore, says Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach with confidence because we know that we will be received. That is who our high priest is. He receives and helps the weak and the needy. And, that, and that's, that's the only application for me to leave you here with. Brother, sister, the one who hold, who's holding fast to Christ as your great high priest, let us draw near. Let's draw near to Christ. We don't have to wonder about God's disposition towards us. We don't have to be afraid. We draw near with confidence knowing that we will receive mercy and find grace in time of need because of who our high priest is. And we are those that have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those that have been reconciled to God through the death of his son and we are safe and secure and he will hold us. And the ministry of our great high priest guarantees safety and security. Therefore, let us press on. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
You don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with your weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as you are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. I don't know the specifics of your trying circumstances, the current challenges you're experiencing, but I know there are many. I know you as an individual, you're, you're facing many. And I know that we all are, in one way or another, right now facing a time of need. And I know that we're all struggling right now with weaknesses and facing various temptations. We're all in need of mercy and help. And the good news is that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and one who's eager to receive us. And so Nansen River Baptist Church, let us draw near to our great high priest as often as we need to. In fact, let us live near the throne of grace in communion with the one who gains and grants us access, never forgetting that he came to help us. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we have hearts that are overcome by the, the grace that's been shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks, Lord Jesus, that you did not kind of quality with God, something to be grasped, but, but made yourself nothing and took the form of a servant and, and were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You persevered and have been, a, you've been raised and given a name above every name and you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And we now, we praise you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.